I'd like you to take your Bibles now and if you'll open them to the book of Revelation chapter 3. A few weeks ago I preached a message on Sunday morning entitled, The Kind of Church That We Want to Be. As I've stated over and over again through our study in the book of Revelation, uh, talking about the seven churches of Asia, I've discussed about how those churches are symbolic of churches in all ages. Throughout the history of Christianity, there have been churches that have had similar problems to those that we find in chapters 2 and 3 of this book. There have been churches that are bad churches, churches that are unfaithful to the Lord. There have been churches that are dead churches, like the one that we spoke about just a couple of weeks or so ago, the church at Sardis. But during the history of the church, there's also been... A lot of good churches, those that were faithful, and in spite of much persecution, they did remain true to the Word of God. If I could pick out one of these churches, of the seven churches of Asia, that I would like our church to be like, it would have to be the one that we're going to discuss tonight. It's the church at Philadelphia. This was a blessed church. And out of all seven churches, there are only two of these churches that don't receive any rebuke from the Lord. And really, this one at Philadelphia is the kind of church that I think that we need to be. I think most of you understand the uh, word Philadelphia. It's a compound of two words that mean brother and mean love. And so the, the actual meaning of the word or literal translation is brother-lover. We know that the nickname of uh, Philadelphia in our country is the city of brotherly love. So that's really a great name, and it's really one that uh, does not accurately depict the city in John's time, and I don't think it, it describes accurately the city in the United States in our time. But one thing that we surely do need to learn and we can learn it better as we go through the Word of God, that we are to be a people that loves one another, that loves the Lord, and just simply has characteristics of love. So if we were to take the character of that church that was in that city, and the city itself maybe not could not be described as a city of love, but the church that was there was a church of love. And should the Lord return to, to uh, today and were he to speak to our church and tell us the kind of church that we ought to be, I think it would be just like this church in Philadelphia. And we need to aspire to be a church that loves. Now, with all the churches that we've studied so far, there's really something for us to learn from the Scriptures about it. So if you would, please, we're looking at Revelation chapter 3. If you'll stand with me, we're going to start reading in verse number 7. This is the sixth of the seventh churches of Asia. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works, and behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. 
Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you'd uh, bless in this message tonight. May we learn something about the church in Philadelphia that will help us and help us to have the same kind of character of love that this church had. Bless in the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This message to the church at Philadelphia starts out similarly to the, to the other churches that we've talked about. There's a message in the very beginning about the one who's writing the letter and often, or it is the case in, with these churches, that it refers back to something that was said about Jesus Christ in that first chapter of the book of Revelation. But the letter here to the church at Philadelphia is just a little bit different because this is one that gives us an Old Testament picture of Jesus. Now, some people think that you really don't need to learn about Old Testament scriptures. That's the old part of the Word of God. It's an old book. It's not pertinent for Christians today, and so there's really no need for us to pick up the Old Testament and study it and find out what the Old Testament says. But that's wrong on many different levels, and it's especially wrong when we consider the introduction to this church that Jesus is speaking to. Uh, This one has an Old Testament character to it, an Old Testament flavor to it, as here Jesus is described as the one who is holy and true and has the keys of David. So that is a description that takes us back into the Old Testament. And when I say that I would like for us to be a church like this church in Philadelphia, I say that first of all because this was a church that regarded, number one, the omnipotence of Christ. This is a church that really saw who Christ was. If there's one theme that has permeated the teaching in Berean Baptist Church, it is that we recognize the power the authority, the supremacy of Jesus Christ in uh, everything that pertains to our God. Many churches say that they believe in God's sovereignty and they believe in his power. They give lip service to that idea, but they really don't have a theology that actually respects God, that he is the controller, he's the planner, he's the true sovereign of this entire creation. But Jesus is the sovereign God. As Scripture says, all things are in him, they're through him. And the Bible says, by him all things consist. So he is the God that we're reading about when we talk about or or look into the Old Testament. He is Jehovah God that we find in the Old Testament, and he's the one who does deserve our praise and devotion. So all glory belongs to him. Well, there are three characteristics that we find about Christ in the seventh verse of this text that has that Old Testament flavoring to it. The first one is the character of his holiness. The Old Testament often speaks about holiness. Holiness was demanded of God's people. The priests in the Old Testament were told that they were to be holy. Kings were to be righteous and holy. But there's no one who could actually have holiness ascribed to him in the way that it's spoken of right here in this verse. Jesus says, these things saith he that is holy. Well, that's an appellation that belongs only to God. Those who who claim that Jesus is not God, 
have a terrible time with this particular reference because this is an Old Testament reference of an attribute that's ascribed to God Almighty alone. When God spoke to Moses and gave him the law, there was a command that that he gave him. He said that you're to be a holy people. He said, be holy because I am holy. That's found in the book of Leviticus, and that is actually the key to that entire book. It's the holiness of God. Of course, holiness relates to God's moral character. It's his, uh, uh, the character that he is spiritually pure. His essence is purity. Holiness, of course, is what every Christian should ascribe to, or, or, or I should say uh, should, should be the goal of our lives, is that we want to be a holy people, and we are holy in the sense that we've been separated from God. We've been called out of this world, and we're set apart for God. And that is a sense holiness but there is another holiness that we must have that, that uh, we have desired, but we cannot have it exactly like God has it because God is inherently holy. There is no person who's inherently holy. The desire of our lives is to become like God, but when God says, I am holy, he's the one who's the ultimate in holiness. He is, he's the standard for us. He's already there. He's always been there. And so there's no one who could say, I am holy in the same sense that God says it. God's being is holiness. And so nobody could say that but God. And Jesus says it because he is God. Now let me point out also that, that Jesus is experimentally holy. His character as God of God is holiness. And, and his character as man is also holiness. In fact, Jesus is the one who proved holiness by the way that he lived his life. It was a perfectly obedient life. He never knew sin. He was born, he lived, he died, he arose again, and never, with, never did sin at any time. So experimentally, we can say that Jesus was holy. And it is, in fact, that perfect holiness of his life that made him suitable to be a sacrifice for our sins. He earned righteousness, a type of righteousness in his holy life. And that is the righteousness that we receive by faith and the righteousness by which we are justified. And that's when we put our faith in him that that earned righteousness of Christ is then transferred to us. Then there's another aspect of his character in verse number 7, and that's the character of truthfulness. These things saith he that is true. And what could be more important for this church to hear than the one that's speaking to them speaks to them the truth. Now, each of these seven churches were bombarded with all kinds of errors. There were multitudes of doctrines that were floating around. There were perversions of Scripture. There were misinterpretations of the Word of God. The Apostle Paul spoke of false gospels, and he said, There be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Jude wrote, For there are certain men crept in unawares, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. John said, For many deceivers are entered into the world. Then Peter wrote, There shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies. And so it's a blessing to the church when someone stands before them and tells them the truth. And when Jesus speaks, he is dependable. He is always truthful. Now today, the the church is still being bombarded by errors from every side. Error is growing in the Christian world today. And sadly, there are many of the people of God who have received error. Today, if somebody can write a book, if they can produce a TV show, then everything that's said, people accept that as the truth. And part of the problem is the people of God do not know enough of the Word of God to be able to discern truth from error. 
But the Bible says that we are to try the spirits to see whether they are of God. But of course, Jesus is not someone who has to be tried. He's already been tested. He's already been tried. And he withstood God's ultimate test. And he always remains faithful. Then there's the third characteristic that we see in that seventh verse. And that's his character of fullness. So there's the holiness, there's the truthfulness, and there's the fullness of Jesus Christ. And we notice there in verse number 7, it says, He hath the key of David. Now that's part of the Old Testament character. He's the root and the offspring of David. We discussed that uh, a time or two before, and it's impossible to do this unless you're God. I mean, you can't be the progenitor of someone and be the progeny at the same time unless you are eternal God. But what does he mean here when he says he has the keys of David? I want you to turn, if you would please, back to the Old Testament, and we're looking to the book of Isaiah, chapter 22. I said that the description of this, uh, of Christ to the church at Philadelphia, has some Old Testament connections. And in Isaiah chapter 22, there is a picture of Jesus, and we find this through a man by the name of Eliakim. Eliakim was a type of Jesus, he was a trustworthy man. So trustworthy, in fact, that he was put in charge of all of the treasury of David. Now look at Isaiah chapter 22, verse number 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key... Of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. The offspring and the issue. All vessels of small quantity. From vessels of cups even to all vessels of flagons. Now to have the key of David means that he has the right or he has the access to all of the king's treasure. Now, this is obviously, in the Old Testament, a picture of Jesus. Jesus was the, of the house and the lineage of David, as we spoke in the message this morning. He's the rightful heir and the final heir to the throne of David. He possesses all things. And one of the things that he promises to his people is that they will receive his inheritance. We are children of the king by God through faith. And so we possess everything that is rightfully his. Now, this is a wonderful thing for the people of God to understand that the one who is always truthful promises you that despite all of your heartaches, despite all the troubles that you have, no matter what persecution that comes upon you, all of these things are going to be yours. And I didn't know that Brother Dalton was going to sing that song tonight. I didn't know the words of it, but that's essentially what that song is bringing us to. If you need hope, if you need to look to someone, if, you, if the answers aren't there, Jesus has it all for you. So no matter what's going on in your life, everything is there. He has a house that's full of treasure. But there's even more in this because the treasure that he promises to us is sure. No one can take it away from us. He has all power and authority so that the Scripture says in these text verses, He openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And doesn't that refer right back to what it said there in Isaiah chapter 22? So this is the character of Christ. He is the omnipotent Christ, and we see His holiness, His truthfulness, and His fullness. And I'm thankful 
that we are a blessed church and we do recognize this one who is sovereign over all. Now, secondly, there comes a commendation from or for this church from the one who has the keys of David. So there's a commendation, secondly, for the obedience of the church. That comes in verse number 8. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. There are differences of opinion about what Christ means here when he says that you have a little strength. There are some commentators who think that if there is a rebuke for the church at Philadelphia, then this would be it. He says that you have a little strength. You don't have the strength that you should have, but you have just a little. And then there are other commentators who say, no, that's not what it means. It means that this was a very small church. There they were in the city of Philadelphia, and in that community, they really couldn't have very much influence. And so that's what it means. And still others say that it means that they didn't rely on their own strength. They have a little strength, and that means that they put all their hope and their confidence in the one who has all strength. And so the strength of God is in view here. Well, I think that there's probably truth to be discovered in each of those interpretations. But for sure, I do know this, that it's followed up with a commendation. They've been obedient to this one who stands in the midst of the churches. So what does he say that they have? Well, he says first that they have perseverance in the word. He says, thou hast kept my word. They remain faithful to him. So I think that if it were possible for them to have been able in those days to print out a confession of faith, a statement of faith like we have for our own church, that surely in that statement of faith they would say that we believe that the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. I believe that the teaching and the preaching of this church came straight from the very words of God. Now at the time that John is writing this, of course the Old Testament had been written. They had the Old Testament they could read. But this is late enough in the first century that probably all of the letters of the Apostle Paul had been circulated to this church. By this time, all of the gospel accounts had been written, and likely those copies had reached the church as well. And so the only thing that was left was the letter, or this book here, that John is writing at the moment that he's speaking to, uh, that Jesus is speaking to the church. So except then for this book that John would finish, the Bible was complete, and it was the Bible alone on which they stood. Now, it's great to say that we have the Bible, and the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice, but the big question today probably is, more importantly, do you teach the Bible? What is it that you're teaching the people from? Do you teach the entire counsel of God's Word? Now, I believe that the way that the Bible should be taught is a chapter-by-chapter exposition. The best way to look into the Word of God is always to look at God's Word in its context. You don't want to pull things out of context to try to prove anything. The best way to explain God's Word is to take it in the context in which it's spoken. Now, there's too much preaching today where the preacher goes, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, where my finger lands, so my sermon goes. And the problem is they're picking out a verse here or there. They pull it out of the context and they try to make a sermon out of that. That's not the way the Word of God is supposed to be taught. The Word is to be taught in the context so that we understand exactly the teaching that's coming out of those words. And then this is also a church that made a profession of Christ's name. He says, Thou hast not denied my name. Church history is 
filled with the testimony of people who, despite those persecutions, never denied the name of Christ. Now, when clinging to the name of Christ could mean your death, perhaps we could understand why there are some people who could not hold out faithful and they did succumb to the pressure. There's no excuse for that because our faith is, it should sustain us at all times, but at least I think that we would probably have a measure of sympathy for somebody who is being tortured, and through that torture they did give up the name of Christ. Maybe we could have some sympathy for someone like that. But what about Christians in this time? What about Christians in our own church and people that you know? The question for us tonight is, have you, have we denied the name of Christ? I doubt very seriously if anybody here has been threatened that somebody will cut out your tongue if you don't deny Christ. It's not likely anybody here has been threatened that you'll be burned at the stake if you don't deny Christ. But the real question is, have you denied him anyway? Well, how do we deny Christ? In what ways can we deny Christ? Well, one of the ways I I think we can identify is right here at this time of year when we're getting closer to Christmas. This time of year, it's, it's time for another round of office parties. And do you as a Christian, do you, do you deny Christ by joining in on that and, and drinking and all the revelry and doing things that are actually a mockery of Christmas rather than a celebration of it? Do you deny Christ uh, because when the Bible or Christians are talked about in your workplace, that there's really no one there who even knows whether you are a Christian or not? Do you deny Christ because you're seen in places where Christians ought not to go? Do you deny him by doing things that Christians shouldn't do? You see, whenever you let down your testimony, that is a denial of Christ. Now, here we have a church that had real, true, violent opposition. To be known as a Christian was hazardous to their health. They could die for this. But Jesus says to this church, you have not denied my name. Now, there are actually three promises that grow out of the faithfulness that they had to the Word and also to the faithfulness of Christ's name. Number one is that they are promised protection. Verse 10 says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. Now, that's the same thing as saying you have persevered in my word. And he says, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. I'm going to come back to this verse in just a minute. but, But I want to just say right now that this is a promise of protection. Let's go back to those keys of David that we spoke about. Jesus is the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. He's the one who holds the keys of salvation, and the Word of God says that he's the one who shuts, and and he's the one who opens. No one but him can do that. See, salvation is a far cry from Jesus standing outside of a door with no way to get in. Now, we'll discuss that a little bit more when we get to verse number 20. But salvation is a far cry from Jesus pleading and begging and trying to get into your heart to save you. Jesus is the one who has the key and not you. And since he's the one who has the key, he is also able to lock you away in his protection. And so your salvation is safe with him. There's nothing that can steal you away from God because God is the one, Jesus is the one who holds those keys. Then secondly, their promise permanence. Permanence we find in verse number 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, in Roman times, the pillars of the, the temples were massive. Uh, that temple that held, or 
pillars, rather, I should say, that, that held up the, uh, the temple in Ephesus, that great temple of Diana. Uh, history tells us that those, those columns, those pillars, were 60 or six stories high, 60 feet tall. They were massive columns that held up that temple. And so when the Bible talks about a pillar, when it talks about that pillar of a temple, it, it's, a, it's a metaphor for strength and stability. It indicates permanence. And if a church is to be a true church, in order for it to receive any kind of permanence, it has to be dependent upon their faithfulness to the name of Christ, their faithfulness also to God's word. Then number three, they're promised because of this position. Again, in verse 12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Now they have, here it says, Jesus says, God's name written upon them. They're already counted as citizens of heaven. They're not not yet there, but they are still citizens of heaven. If they had a passport that they carried around with them, it would say, New Jerusalem on it, because they were citizens of that place. That is a position of honor and esteem. The Bible even promises that those who are believers in Christ will be placed above the angels that are in heaven. Songwriter said, it pays to serve Jesus. It pays every day. It pays every step of the way. And folks, that is true. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we're protected. We have permanence and we do have position. Then number three, the next thing that we find in this text is about the oppressors of the church. Now, this is sad, but the strongest opponents of the church are indicated in verse number 9. It says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Now, of course, Jesus here is talking about his own people, the people that he came to. He's talking about the Jews. The Jews were the very first ones to receive the gospel of Christ. Jesus was born among them. Largely, mostly, his ministry, his earthly ministry, was restricted to be among the Jews. And yet, as we know, the Bible says they rejected him and they crucified him. Then we come to the ministry of the apostles after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And who did the apostles minister to? Well... Mostly, they ministered to the Jews. In the beginning, that's where they started. But still, the Jews rejected that message, and they treated the apostles in the same way that they treated Christ. And then when Paul was called to be an apostle, he was an apostle to the Gentiles, but it was always his custom to go into the synagogues of those Gentile cities, and there he would start dealing with Jewish people first. He would give them the gospel. He preached to them. He would dispute with them. But in Paul's ministry, there were very few Jews that were saved. They still rejected the message. And here we come down to the end of the first century where where John is writing, where Jesus is speaking. Christianity had grown, it had spread to many different places of the world. And here are people, the Jews, who in their own right, they were hated by the Greeks and the Romans. But what did they do? They joined in with the Greeks and the Romans, with Romans, with the Gentiles in oppressing and persecuting Christians. And many times it was the Jews that were the instigators of that persecution. Someone said, politics makes strange bedfellows. 
Well, it's also true with religion. When it comes to opposition against true Christianity, there are very diverse religions that can come together for the purpose of persecuting God's people. I mean, people who have very diverse opinions can come together and be best of friends when it comes to their opposition of Christianity. A good example of this is in Russia today, uh, the, the, the Russian Orthodox Catholic Church has teamed up with Muslims in Russia. I mean, with Muslims to persecute evangelical Christians. And so these are people who say that they're Jews and they're not really Jews. Now, what that means is they're not spiritual Jews. Spiritual Jews are the ones who followed Christ and that's who would be called Christians. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and that circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. So this, the, the, these are people that he says are the synagogue of Satan. That's what Jesus says. So what's God going to do with them? What will he do with these people? They say they're Jews, but they're not really Jews. What does he do? Well, first, he says that all of them, all of the Jews will one day come to submission. There's no one who stands against God who will stand for very long. Now, these, Christ says, they will come and they will bow down and they will worship at the feet of God's people. Now, that doesn't literally mean that Christians are to be worshipped. That's not what he's talking about. Christians do not deserve worship Only Christ does. But what he's giving us here is a metaphor to say that all of the enemies of God's people will be humbled. They'll finally recognize who it is that truly belongs to Jehovah God. And so physical Israel, at one day, one day physical Israel will recognize that spiritual Israel is the true people of God. And they're going to be humbled before spiritual Israel. So eventually, all of them will come to submission, which is a forced submission. But the wonderful truth of all this is that we do have a God who is kind. He is merciful. He does say that Israel is his chosen nation, and God has not forgotten them. So all of them will come to submission in one way or another, but there is another promise that is found in this, and that is that some of them, some of them would come to salvation. The Scripture teaches that a remnant of Israel will be saved. We're going to see this a little bit later on as we go through Revelation. We'll come to a place here where we find that there are 144,000 Jewish people who are sealed, 12,000 that come from each tribe that will be saved, and those will be the people who will be the great witnesses of the gospel of Christ during the tribulation period. And then after the tribulation period, God has something special for Israel, and that is that he's going to set up his millennial kingdom. Jesus will rule in that kingdom from Jerusalem. The kingdom will be restored to Israel, and God will rule. Jesus will rule these people, uh, and Israel will be the ruling nation of the entire world. Here's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. And what Paul is speaking about there, Israel is still God's chosen nation. A remnant of Israel will be saved. And that just shows us what a gracious God that we have. 
Even though Israel rejected him, and yet God has not forgotten them. There will be a remnant that trusts Christ, and they will serve him. They will recognize him as the real King of kings and Lord of lords. Now let me point out then one other truth from this passage. Number four is the opportunities for the church. Verse 8 again, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Well, what kind of opportunities would a church like Philadelphia have? Well, they have the opportunity to advance the gospel. Now, it's really amazing what God can do in the most trying of circumstances. It would seem logical to us that where there is much hostility to the gospel of Christ, that there would be few opportunities for people to be saved. As long as government and people, others are against Christianity, as long as there's open persecution, it would seem like that the opportunities for preaching the gospel would be severely limited. But that is not the case that we find throughout history. There are many opportunities in spite of persecution still to reach people for Christ. Another example, again, is with the, with the country of Russia. You would think that a, a country that was under uh, communist government, that Christians were oppressed, that Christians were put to death, that surely that in the Soviet Union Christianity had been stamped out. But actually the opposite is true. When that country was opened up and the Soviet reign was over, there was found out to be there were many Christians, many believers in that country. And then Paul's example is another good case case in point because he was up against some very powerful enemies. Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and and you would think, well, what can Paul do there? How can he reach anybody in prison? There's no opportunity for him. And yet Paul still reached people, and the people that he reached took the gospel to far-off places in the world that Paul never saw. And what that tells us is that when God opens the door of salvation, nobody can shut it. And those who claim that Christianity will die out, it can't survive, they don't know the power of God. Only God can shut that door. And when he says that it's open, people will be saved. But conversely, we ought to understand that when God does shut the door, there is nobody that can open it. And the most powerfully persuasive preachers with all of their tear-jerking stories and their gut-wrenching illustrations... They don't have the power to convert even one soul to Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered about this? Why does a church like Berean Baptist survive in Sonoma County? Now here we are. We are surrounded by the most liberal of the liberal. They hate the doctrine that we preach. On the other hand, we, are, we have the most fundamental of the fundamentalist, And they also hate the doctrine that we preach. So how do we survive here? Well, we're still going along, aren't we? People are still getting saved. The gospel is still preached. And the reason is, when God opens the door, he opens the door. And man doesn't do that. And when God shuts the door, man has no power against him. But there is one other truth that I want to show in this passage, and we don't want to miss this. I said I would come back to verse number 10. So let's read that again. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee... From the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So the church will have the sure opportunity to avoid the tribulation. Now sometimes people will ask, 
How do you know that Christians are not going to go through the tribulation period? And there are lots of different opinions about this because we don't have a scripture in the Bible that just says in, in just plain fashion, doesn't clearly say Christ will come before the tribulation. So you have some people who think that Christians will be here for at least half of the tribulation for three and a half years. And people who believe that believe in what's called a mid-tribulational rapture. And then you have other people who say, no, that's not right. Christians are going to go through all the tribulation. Jesus is not coming back until the tribulation period is over. And those are people who believe in what we call a post-tribulational rapture. But what we teach is a pre-tribulational rapture. And this is actually one of the verses of Scripture that we use to support that. So you might want to underline it here. I'm going to explain to you why this verse teaches that there will be a pre-tribulational rapture. Now remember that the churches of Asia are symbolic of churches in all ages. And so what Jesus speaks to this church is not for that individual church alone. There's also a message for all churches. Now Jesus said... This church will be kept from the hour of temptation that will come upon the whole world. Now that tells us, first of all, that the hour of temptation is a very definite period of time. In World War II, Winston Churchill spoke of the bravery of England in repelling the advancing armies of Nazi Germany. And he made this statement. He said, let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties... And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Now, obviously, when Winston Churchill said that, he didn't mean that Britain would fight against Germany for one hour, that they're going to repel Germans for one hour. No, he related that to a time period. And the same thing is true what we're reading here in the book of Revelation. The hour of temptation refers to a specific divine, uh, determined time period. And what does the Bible tell us that time period is? Well, it's seven years. There'll be seven years of tribulation. And then Jesus says that this temptation will come upon the entire world. Now, the tribulation period fits that description because the Bible describes the tribulation as a worldwide calamity. There's no place on the earth that's going to, ex- to escape this time of tribulation. And yet he promises this church that they'll be kept from the hour of temptation. And so that argues against a mid-tribulational rapture or a post-tribulational rapture. And then finally, we see that scriptures, other scriptures that talk about the second coming of Christ or that time of the rapture that like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that neither one of them say anything at all about the church going through that terrible event. The picture that we always get of the second coming of Christ is that is is an imminent return. It could happen at any moment. We expect as Christians an immediate deliverance from this world. And so when the Bible says that no one can know the day, they can't know the hour, they can't know the season of Christ's return then that would argue against any event that we find in the book of Revelation that would be interpreted as a sign of the coming of Christ. So that all argues that there will be a pre-tribulational rapture of Christians. None of us who are believers in Jesus Christ will see this time of tribulation that will come upon the world. Now, here's the, the thought that I want to leave you with in the, in, in tonight, our final statement. Jesus is coming soon, and there are opportunities for all of us right now. And your final statement is, now the door is open. 
enter while you may. Now we sing that song, Whosoever Will May Come. And one of the lines in that song is, Now the door is open, enter while you may. And of course that is an indication that one day this door is going to be closed. The writer of that song had the good sense to know that one day God will close that door and no one will be able to open it. Now the question for each of us tonight is are we using the opportunities that God has given? The door is open right now. We have a door of service that's been opened to us. And sooner than all of us may think, that door might be closed. There's also a door of salvation that is right now open. And sooner than many people think, that door will be closed. And so the question for us is, while the door is open, are we really taking advantage of all the opportunities that God has given us to reach people with the gospel of Christ? We need to be a loving church and a church that takes all available opportunities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to study your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, for this great book of Revelation, the words of Jesus, and all the things that we learn here. And may we look for your return, and may we use the opportunities that you've given us now. And, Lord, we do know that one day, the day of grace will be over. People will not be saved, and they'll face the eternal wrath of God. And we just pray, Lord, that now, while this door is open, that people would believe, they would receive the gospel of Christ and that every Christian might use the opportunity of service that we have right now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.